0: And welcome to the Corney and Lind Legal Chatter podcast, where we discuss different but likely scenarios, provide general legal information and get to know our lawyers. Please note that this podcast series does not provide or intends to provide legal advice.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Corny and Lynn's uh, Legal Chat. Um, My name is Irvin and I am a graduate law clerk here. And on today's episode, I speak with our newest associate, uh, Simon Mason, uh, here with us uh, today to talk all about migration law. So just to start things off, uh, why don't you uh, tell
2: us a bit about yourself, Simon, and uh, what brought you here to Corny and Lynn Lawyers? Oh, thank you, Irvin. It's a pleasure to be with you here today, and yep, I got started in migration law probably around five or six years ago, uh, probably shortly after I completed my bachelor's, Bachelor of Laws. Um, at the time, I was particularly interested in refugee rights and had a number of colleagues that were working in the sector and simply had some fantastic opportunities post-graduation to come on board with a number of teams that were doing some really exciting work, um, working with some of the onshore cohort of protection visa applicants. And at the time I found that fairly immensely rewarding. We got to work with individuals from a whole range of different cultural and linguistic backgrounds. Um, And just the opportunity and the space that that created to connect with clients from a whole range of backgrounds really impacted me and I remember reflecting fairly deeply on just how enriched we were as a country by, by, our, by, our, basically by our migration program. So at the time, shortly as a new graduate, that, that captured my interest, and from that point onwards, I decided that I'd be specializing primarily in, in migration law. And shortly after that time, I had an opportunity to work with some of the offshore processing cohort. Uh, that was a refugee cohort that was based at the time in Nauru. Uh, some of whom were brought to Australia for medical treatment. But throughout their whole, basically, their migration process, they were being processed under the Nauruan jurisdiction. Now, at the time, Nauru had adopted uh, the UNHCR's model guidelines for processing refugee claims. So that gave me a pretty clear view of how the international community deals with and processes refugee claims. So after that experience which was a fairly fairly short period of time, but very impactful period of time, I returned back onshore to Australia and resolved to open my own humanitarian law practice. Uh, we ran the practice for around three years. Uh, at the same time, we expanded out and included a whole range of different commercial uh, migration matters, as well as quite a large number of fa- uh, family migration matters as well as kind of retaining our initial focus on protection and refugee matters. So throughout that time, that gave us a a very, very broad and diverse view of the Australian Migration Program. And over the few years that we ran that business, we just had the absolute pleasure of seeing quite a number of applicants find basically permanent settlement in Australia, some which uh, some applicants thought that they'd never have an opportunity to, to remain here permanently. Others were winding their way through the immigration process, and we finally brought them to resolution. And other applicants, too, were able to be reunited with family members, some of whom they they wouldn't have seen for over 10 or 15 years. So throughout that time, I think the most compelling aspect of working in migration law really has been the human element. Uh, It's an opportunity to sit with people, meet them on their journey, hear their story, have the privilege of hearing where their journey's taken them so far, and then obviously represent them and advocate for them throughout the complexities of the Australian Migration Program. And really coming to the end of a whole migration matter with a client, you really do feel as though you've connected with them in their story in an in in extraordinarily deep way. Many times we've had um, connections with clients where we've been invited along to, to weddings after a fiance has finally managed to come on shore or i've been invited to a restaurant where we can sit and have a meal and just reflect on on the length of their migration journey so far so while i'd say it probably was the humanitarian aspect that drew me to migration probably what's kept me in the sector has just been uh just the privilege of, of meeting with people and hearing their stories along the way
1: awesome um, and
2: i and i guess um just for
1: most of us i suppose i went most of us who have grown up in Australia, we take that as, we sort of take that for granted at times as well, and without realizing that it's such a privilege to be able to live in this country with, with all its protections and rights and things like that. And yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, the one thing I can say most certainly is that Australia's culture really is deeply enriched by multiculturalism. It strengthens us as a nation, it enriches um, not just our culinary. Um, culture but it also enriches us in terms of the different celebrations, the different cultural focuses that all the different groups bring to Australia and you know, just the, the privilege to be able to basically work with individuals that through ordinary life maybe maybe we wouldn't have the opportunity to connect with and, and really hear their stories and be able to basically, you know, give effect to some of their, their you know, their desires to settle here and, and make Australia a better place. That's been incredibly rewarding along the journey. Yeah, that's awesome.
1: So we've talked a lot about why you sort of wanted to go into migration law. Um, Sam, do you think you can just give us
2: a brief overview of what is migration law? Yeah, certainly. So the Australian Migration Program is one of the most uh, dynamic, um, complex, and broad-ranging areas of law in the Australian legal system. So the obviously the Australian Migration Program began... Um, many, many years ago before Federation, when obviously convicts were brought out to Australia. And from that time, the Australian, basically at the time the colony, was strongly incentivizing migration to Australia. Um, since that time, coming through Federation, throughout World War Two, throughout obviously the, the post-World War Two era, into obviously the, the 70s and the 80s, the Australian economy has been driven in a large part through its migration program. Australia has sought to attract and retain skilled labor that complements some of the existing labor in Australia. But in addition to that as well, it's recognized that many people do migrate to Australia because they have pre-existing family connections here and because they seek to, to, to make a better life for themselves. So it's no exaggeration to say that one of the primary drivers of Australia's economy over the last 150 years has been immigration. Uh, even most recently over the COVID period, uh, we've seen, obviously, the, the net overseas migration, or the NOM drop from what it would normally be under the permanent migration program from about 160,000 uh, down to a net negative 70,000, which is an extraordinary drop. And already we can see that that's having immediate knock-on effects with the economy. And the Australian government has made some, uh, clear policy decisions following the budget in October last year to really try and fast-track certain applicants, and incentivize other applicants to, to settle permanently and remain in Australia to make up some of that shortfall. So I guess when we look at the migration program as a whole we're really looking at people's journeys right from the very start as you know potentially visitors to Australia, perhaps they're doing a work exchange program through one of the working holiday visas they may be considering a short period of study through perhaps our student program. Or alternatively, they could just be visiting here for, for just a, a short-term holiday for whatever reason. At the very shallow end of the pool is those short-term temporary visas. But once we dig a little deep, we can see that a lot of those temporary visas do give way to longer-term visas, such as some of the um, sponsored work visas, or after a period of study, some of the temporary graduate visas. Um, kind of what we call the mid-range kind of temporary visas. Um, Alternatively, while visiting here, someone might meet an Australian, in which case they start up a relationship, or they might be meeting a family member here and decide that they want to actually seek migration. So then, of course, at the other end of the spectrum, we have our permanent migration visas. Uh, This includes the partner visa, of which there's a fairly large number uh, of places in the permanent migration program out Allocated to the partner visa for this for this present migration year, uh, and of course include quite a number of the permanent um, migrate skilled migration visas as well, and and we're seeing some big changes in that area as well as as the Australian government uses that permanent um, skilled migration program to drive um, really to to stimulate the economy in some key areas. We can talk about that in just a second, but. In addition to obviously the temporary visas, kind of the midterm temporary visas, and of course the permanent visas, we also tend to include the Citizenship Act in the migration program as well. Even though it's uh, regulated by a different act, by the Citizenship Act, um, we do consider that moving towards acquiring and having citizenship either conferred or, or, or received is a key element of particular migrants migration journey we don't consider that that process is completed until citizenship has been achieved. A great example of this is some of the difficulty that's currently being seen by many of our New Zealand special category subclass triple four visa holders who perhaps they might have had the opportunity to transfer their temporary visa to a permanent visa but if they perhaps missed that opportunity and then perhaps um, through obviously through chance and through life, perhaps they were charged with a criminal offence, they may be currently in danger of having their visa canceled and then obviously being repatriated back to New Zealand. Uh, For many of the individuals in this particular caseload or cohort, that kind of negative outcome could have been avoided had they sought to obtain permanent residency and citizenship uh, at their earliest convenience. Uh, You know, well, certainly, we wouldn't ever recommend <laughs> anyone commit any offence. But if, in fact, life happens and offence does occur, um, once citizenship has been obtained, um, that that can't be stripped away through through the committing of offence. So it really does really do need to consider that that overarching process, culminating in the conferral of Australian citizenship, really is an assessment like a necessary component to the migration journey. And we do encourage all of our clients to apply at their soonest convenience.
1: Awesome. So Simon, you've touched on a, a bunch of different types of visas. Um, so what are the main types of visas that um, you think you can assist with?
2: Yeah, certainly. So there's a whole number of different types of visas we can assist with. And let's, let's walk through some of the, some of the, the spectrum of visas. At the very short end of the spectrum, we do have the visitor visas. Um, that can be quite as simply as, as quite as simple as having a relative who may be offshore from Australia visit on a three month visitor visa. Now at the moment that can be quite complex because of COVID-19. So in addition to applying for a visitor visa, such an applicant would also likely need to consider applying for a travel ban exemption as well. And if that applicant was from a high-risk country, that is a country where there might be a high rate of non-return, where individuals who arrive from that country have statistically in the past uh, been less likely to return home at the cessation of their their visa stay period. Uh, If they're from a higher-risk country, then that's gonna require a little bit more additional evidence to demonstrate that they hold an incentive to return at the, at the completion of their visa stay. So while those visitor visas can appear deceptively simple on the surface, oftentimes there is a number of different processes that would need to be undertaken to, to bring the family member out. In addition, we can assist with uh, the working holiday visa. Uh, this is a visa that applicants from some of the more developed countries, if they're within a certain age bracket between 18 and 35, can come out to Australia uh, and, and work and study, oh, sorry, my apologies, can uh, work and holiday for a short period of time. This allows visa holders to work for a single employee for a six month period maximum before they have to move on to another employee. So it really does kind of incentivize short term work periods. Further, we can also assist with student visas there's a range of different courses that international students can consider in Australia. Australia runs a program called CRICOS, which is C-R-I-C-O-S, which basically accredits domestically offered courses in Australia for the international market. So that means, effectively, for any uh, course that's registered with CRICOS, an international student can apply, once they've been accepted to enrol in that course of study, can apply for a student visa and then be granted it on the basis that they're coming here to study that course. Now that can range from something as simple to uh, a short uh, English language course uh, of about three to six months. Uh, It Could include something that's maybe a bit more of a personal interest study, perhaps like a um, diploma or a certificate for in sports science. it can also include a study that might progress your professional skills at a greater level. We do see a lot of applicants consider the Diploma of Leadership and Management. Alternatively, some applicants do apply because they're considering a vocational course that may have prospects for permanent residency. For individuals in that category, we do recommend things like automotive mechanic or auto-electrical, uh, plumbing, tiling, carpentry, all fantastic vocational trades courses that do tend to provide you know, prospects somewhere down the line of potentially having a permanent visa outcome. Alternatively, some applicants would like to consider longer periods of study. Um, we can also look at some of the bachelor levels, that is the tertiary university level study. Um, popular courses in this category include bachelors of nursing, uh, bachelors of accounting, although that's uh, that's the prospects of a permanent migration outcome for accounting has weakened recently. Uh, alternatively, you could look at bachelors of engineering. Another significant growth area, actually, at the moment in today's economy, is bachelor of information communications technology, or or ICT. ICT. Uh, occupations are in really sharply increasing demand at the moment, so we are seeing a lot of foreign students considering their options uh, through one of those ICT-style uh, courses. Now in addition, we do have a lot of graduates, international graduates, that do see Australia as a very attractive place to do postgraduate study. This can include a master's or potentially even up to a PhD, all of which can be studied under the student visa program. Now, in addition, many students who are coming up to graduation might want to stay a little longer and explore some of their opportunities for working with an Australian uh, business. For those type of uh, applicants, we would also recommend the temporary graduate visa, which is uh, which is an option for some of the student graduates. Now, alternatively, if they do work for a few years on one of the temporary graduate visas, such Postgraduate students might consider their options on one of the temporary skill shortage visas. Australia does run a two-year and a four-year program for temporary skilled workers, which can allow a sponsoring employer to, to sponsor a skilled worker if they can't find such a skilled worker in the Australian market. That's been a great um, opportunity for Australian businesses to cover some of the skill shortages that we've seen in the domestic labour market. And we have seen quite a number of employers approach us indicating that they've got a key or skilled worker whom they need to, to, to keep onshore. And we've, we've found creative solutions to keep that skilled worker in their business. Additionally, uh, perhaps during their period of study, um, many visa applicants meet an Australian, they may then be eligible a little bit later on for the Australian Partner Visa. There's a significant number of Partner Visas being granted at the moment. Previously, it appears as though there was a cap on the number of grants for the Partner Visa of around 45,000. Over the last migration year, it seems as though, well, we know for a fact that the Australian government has ramped up that um, that Partner Visa visa cap to 75, 70, sorry, 72,000 applicants. The Australian government has ramped up the partner visa cap to 72,000 applicants. This means that we're seeing quite a number of partner visa grants this current migration year and uh, that's been that uh, if you're eligible for that visa that's one of the most um, effective and durable ways to achieve Australian permanent residency. Now lastly, in addition to obviously the visas that we discussed above, it's worth keeping in mind that there are a range of family visas that we can apply for that include child visas, remaining relative, adoption, um, orphan relative, parent visas, and there's a couple different subcategories in the parent visa as well, the parent visa kind of program. Uh, Now in addition to the family program visas, There are also a number of permanent skilled visas too. This can range from permanent employer sponsored visas uh, for individuals who've been temporarily sponsored in Australia who want to basically see a permanent pathway, but it can also include some of the more skilled visas through the points tested program. Having said that though, the points tested program has been de-emphasized through the last budget and we are seeing that that program that was previously quite competitive has become even more competitive We're seeing less grants for that program. So generally, we're going to recommend that most prospective skilled workers look to explore their options for a sponsoring employer um, before they consider their options too closely under the points tested program. So we've talked a bit about yourself, um, talked about how you sort of
1: came into migration law um, and sort of talked about an overview of migration law and the different types of visas um, that we might be able to assist anyone with just from your experience working in migration law, has there been any standout stories or any um, um, any feel-good
2: stories that would be worth sharing? Yeah, certainly. Um, let me consider. Well, perhaps one of my most favourite stories was a refugee client who we were assisting from Iran. And this individual had been a high achiever in a very specific form of Iranian mixed martial arts called Pancration, and he was an individual who trained up quite a large number of um, wrestlers in this mixed martial arts sport but through a twisted series of events ended up having to seek protection in Australia and I had the privilege of working with his matter. Now, it was a fascinating claim. So what happened was, after being approached by the Revolutionary Guard, who was seeking to recruit him to train some of their soldiers, and after having resisted the overtures of the Revolutionary Guard, the Iranian government started accusing the Pancration community in Iran of having been infiltrated by a rival Israeli mixed martial arts discipline called Krav Maga. What ended up happening was uh, my client went on a trip to Lebanon along with a number of other members of the pancration community to compete in a mixed martial arts competition, and at that location there were a number of Israeli competitors who were also competing in, in Krav Maga. Now it gets a little bit interesting from here because after returning back to Iran, shortly afterward, one of shortly, uh, shortly afterwards one of the Iranian Uh, nuclear scientist was assassinated. Now, the Revolutionary Guard cracked down hard on the pan-Croatian community and ended up arresting one of my client's colleagues and accusing him of having been approached and recruited by the Mossad in order to basically return, subvert the Iranian state, and assassinate its key nuclear scientists. The National Guard ended up forcing a confession from my client's colleague who went on national television and confessed to the murder of the Iranian nuclear scientist. At that time, my client became very concerned for his safety and realized that he was a part of an outlawed sport and decided to flee Iran. He fled by Iran to Australia via boat and was fortunately able to have a successful outcome in his protection process. But what struck me about that story was the extraordinary insight that it brought to the world of intrigue that an espionage that otherwise, I wouldn't have otherwise known about or otherwise heard about, but for that story.
1: That's crazy. These are sort of things that we only see in movies, but I guess from this experience, it's actually, happens in real life as well. Well, we might just wrap it up there. Um, Once again, thank you, Simon, for sharing all that with us. And thank you for everyone uh, listening. And be sure to look out for our next uh, Legal Chatter podcast.
0: Thank you for listening to the Corny and Lind Legal Chatter podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode of Corny and Lind Legal Chatter. If you require specific legal advice for your situation, contact us directly on 7 or go to www.cornyandlind.com.au forward slash contact.